You're watching My Fellow Americans with your host, Spud Cohen. Yes. 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 Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's me. It's literally me. Keep clapping. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to My Fellow Americans. I am literally Spike Cohen. I'm so happy to have you here tonight. Uh, what is it? July the 10th? July the 10th. I'm so happy to have you here on July the 10th. Um, can't. Uh, last week was our one-year anniversary episode, so this is the beginning of the second year of My Fellow Americans. I'm so happy to have you. Um, thank you again. This is a Muddied Waters Media production. Check us out on Facebook, YouTube, uh Instagram, check us out on Anchor, Twitter, Periscope, iTunes, Google Play, check us out everywhere, give us reviews everywhere, hit the bell if you need to be notified there, do all the bells and the follows and everything everywhere, thank you so much, be sure to share this one, this episode too, Uh, the last thing I want is for one of your closest uh, friends or family to miss out on a roughly hour long anarchist podcast on a Wednesday evening. That would be terrible. Be sure uh, to give the gift of Spike Cohen today. Kids love it. This program, as always, is brought to you by Anchor FM. Uh, I will be plugging that later, roughly halfway through this program, probably at a very inappropriate moment. Uh, The intro and outro music to this and every episode of My Fellow Americans is from the amazing and talented Mr. Joe Davi. That is J-O-D-A-V-I. Check him out on Facebook, Check him out on SoundCloud. Go to joedavimusic.bandcamp.com. Buy his entire discography. It's less than 20 bucks. You'll love it. Thank you to... uh, No, not Kroger. Thank you to Canada for this delicious water that I drink in this and every Canadian episode of My Fellow Americans, Bulavanaka. Shout out to Tehran Turks' mom and him as always. Guys, before I introduce my guest, uh, very important update on something that has been... Uh, racking the followers of uh, of my of Muddy Waters Media for the last uh, uh, forty eight hours now, uh, we had probably one of the most important polls we've ever had. Uh, definitely one of the most uh, engaged polls we've ever had. Uh, the age old question of which would you rather fight, an elephant sized turtle or five thousand turtle sized elephie? And uh, we got a lot of questions uh, and a lot of confusion. And, uh, and a lot of anger. There was the people were angry and I wasn't ready for the anger, uh, but they were. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it, it, for a while there, it was neck and neck. At one point it was, uh, I think the, the turtle sized LFE were at like 50.1% and the, the turtle, the elephant sized turtle was at 49.9. Um, now the, for quite a while now, the, uh, elephant sized turtle in the last 24 hours has just completely pulled away. It's not even close anymore. Uh, 
or at least it's not a clo- close enough uh, statistically for the, the turtle size LFI to come back. So even though there's still another, I think, hour left on the poll, we are comfortable calling the poll for uh, elephant-sized turtle. And uh, with over over 500 votes, I think we got close to 600 votes. And so um, so that is the, and that actually is the correct answer, uh, an elephant-sized turtle. The turtle-sized LFI uh, would run you down. There's just too many of them. So... I'm glad we got that update. Um, so now that we've got that out of the way, my guest tonight, I'm very excited about. My guest tonight is even more Jewish than me, which is not difficult, sadly. Uh, he's also equally as anarchist as I am, which is more more difficult. Uh, he's the uh, co-founder of Anarcho Vegas, uh, which will be, let me pull that up. Uh, that's going to be uh, the very first year of Anarcho Vegas. It's going to be in Las Vegas, Nevada on July 20th and 21st. And we're going to be talking more about that. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, uh, please welcome to my fellow Americans, the anarchy Jewish man himself, Mr. Yaakov Merkel. Markel. Yaakov, thank you for joining. Thank you for having me. Thanks for I'm really excited to have you on, man. Um, so, yeah, so guys, uh, be sure to comment with your uh, questions and thoughts, and uh, Yaakov and I will tell you if you are right or wrong. Now, Yaakov, this is your first time as a guest. And the, the first question that I ask new guests whenever they come on to my show for the first time is, uh, how did you become, uh, in your case, an anarchist? Have you always been an anarchist? Was there this aha movement or kind of a gradual evolution? Tell, tell us about that. So I've sort of always been an anarchist, but there was sort of an aha moment where I realized that I was an anarchist. Oh, okay. But to be honest, um, my grandfather was born in Frankfurt on my father's side. My grandfather was born in Frankfurt uh, in 1921. And they escaped Frankfurt. They escaped Germany right before the war. Uh, didn't have any citizenship anywhere. They weren't, uh, you know, they um, were kind of, they were in France. And they sort of made their way to Israel and uh, didn't get any citizenship. They didn't, none of them had citizenship until um, they eventually got citizenship from the British, uh, Palestinian citizenship from the British. My grandmother was actually born in, in uh, Jaffa, Palestine in 1923, also didn't have citizenship until she was, I don't know, maybe 18 or 19 or something like that. So nationalism was never really something that, you know, that we had on my father's side because uh, shortly after 1948, um, after the socialists basically took over in Israel, <laughs> they, they said, well, we, you know, my grandfather basically said, like, we can't do business here, so let's get that out of here. They, uh, so they actually they, left when Israel was formed. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were they were sort of on the you know you had people don't realize but but there was sort of a civil war going on at that time also. So they were part of the Khairut party. Khairut means freedom, and that was basically the only free market party. And obviously the socialists won, <laughs> and so Israel became essentially a socialist country, a communist. Almost communist country. It was it so, was pretty close okay. to a communist country, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not quite, you know, Soviet communism, but basically no recognition of property rights or you know no no enshrinement of rights like you have in the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. Nothing like that, you know. Right. Uh, you know, they looked at that and they said, "Well, it's you know, it's time to leave." <laughs> so when they decided they wanted to move to Los Angeles, they had family in LA, and so they moved to Canada. My father was like five years old. Uh, and they moved to Canada and then uh, eventually made their way 
to LA. Yeah, That's interesting. That's interesting. So uh, my father's side of the family also came to the U.S. from Canada, and this would have been around, it was earlier though, it was around the late 1800s, early 1900s, and some of them are still up in the, in the maritime provinces, up in the, in the eastern provinces, but, uh, but they came down and, and settled in Massachusetts, where most of them are now. We're the ones that, we're the snowbirds that, that moved to Myrtle Beach, but... Um, so yeah, so that's interesting. So these were two stateless people or for a long time, stateless people, they settle in essentially their historical, our historical homeland and they go, okay, this is working out for us. And then when people go, great news, we're going to make a Jewish state. And also it's going to be communist. They're like, they're like, no, no, we're out of here. Well, the funniest part is that my, my grandmother's family had, you know, have been in Palestine for hundreds of years, at least, you know, it was as back as we can trace, you know, my, my grandmother's grandfather was a rabbi in Jerusalem. Um, and, you know, it just goes back and back. So, yeah. That's so funny. That is funny. Got, uh, got a Jewish socialist state. It's not really a Jewish state, you know. It's, uh, it's a secular state with a Jewish majority population. It's a Jew-flavored secular socialist state, right? Like, exactly. there was this... Yeah. There was a huge debate uh, about even mentioning God in the, the, the founding charters. And they, they came to a, a settlement where they used a term that means uh, the rock of uh, my memory's failing me now, the rock of something. And they were able to say, well, we meant God. But then right. but then some of the, the people that signed off on it said we never signed off on God. That was supposed to be like meaning our heritage and culture, not not God. So it was not a. Uh, there's been a lot of revision now to make it into this, like that this was this biblical thing that happened. And it, it, it really was yeah, not. A lot of religious, religious Jews uh, don't recognize the state of Israel. They right. don't say, uh, they don't say that, you know, they won't uh, put up Israeli flags or celebrate Israel in much of any way. A lot of Jews, actually a lot of Orthodox Jews in Israel don't, um, you know, don't celebrate, you know, Israeli independence day or right. for, of this moment of silence or or whatever you know they don't pay taxes that actually pretty staunchly orthodox um anti-israel community in israel <laughs> like they refuse to pay taxes they refuse to to um uh vote for the most part they refuse to uh um sign up for the military or anything right yeah interesting but they're still in israel well, they're not going to move. They were there before Israel was created. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I know there are the ones that, I forget what their name is, but I know there are a lot of them in like the Brooklyn, New York area that believe that um, that Jews aren't even supposed to go back there until the uh, Mashiach, until Messiah comes. And uh, But so these are just ones that are like, we didn't agree. We, we didn't consent to any of this. You know, you came here and did your own thing and we just don't want to be a part of it. That's funny. Well, um, there's... They, the, the, Hasidic Jews don't believe, it's not that they don't believe that Jews should go back to live there. It's fine to go and live there, but it's, uh, they feel that it's, it's um, incorrect to, to create a Jewish state, you know, right. to create a political entity. They can live there and be under, they, you know, they were under the Turks and they were under British rule and right, so on right. and so forth. Yeah, but to create a, to fight against the world and create a, a Jewish political entity that they feel is... Um, outside of the bounds of, of Judaism. Right, right. And this kind of... So, 
from what I've read, so there have been a lot of prominent Jewish anarchists. There have also been a lot of prominent Jewish everythings, but that just seems to be what we do. Uh, but uh, we tend to rise to prominence. But um, it it seems to me, and and well, correct that's me, <laughs> I wasn't going to say it, but uh, uh, it, but uh, you know, it seems to me if you look at a people who are a tiny 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 minority of people i mean you're talking what like 50 million or less than 50 million jews in a world in a planet of 7 billion people uh you know the the, the I, I mean to call them a minority is is almost a joke i mean they're 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 you know we're, we're there are so very very few of us and and then and then beyond that so many of us are uh over time you know mixed with other races and things like that so i mean there's it's you know we we, we don't it would be hard for us to create a, a a big national structure. And when you look at the history of how we've been treated in other countries, how what has happened in countries where the government has gotten bigger and bigger, what almost inevitably results every time, you would think that Jews should, or I would think. You can correct me if you're if I'm wrong, but if you if you disagree, but it seems like Jews should be natural anarchists or at least natural libertarians, and yet. Jews, by and large, tend to vote for, most people tend to vote for ever-increasing government, but most Jews seem to be on the edge of the spear of voting for ever-increasing government. You think of Bernie Sanders, who was, you know, the, the, the main figurehead of democratic socialism in the U.S. And why do you think that is? It's, uh, it's really odd, and it, it, it actually makes no sense. <laughs> historically, uh, historically, uh, Governments have never worked out for the Jews, you know. Uh, it's just been, it's been uh, a story of persecution for two thousand years, right? Right. So more even. So, so the idea that that uh, Jews are so uh, pro statism, it's just <laughs> it kind of boggles the mind, you know. You know, a funny funny thing to note: there are actually more U.S. government employees uh, than there are Jews in the world. That doesn't surprise me. I, 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 I'm sure. I'm sure that's. I've, I mean, it, it's just. It, it's absurd to me. You, you, you look at even in biblical times. If you, if you, even reading, even reading the, even the reading the Torah. You, it's just one story after the next of a larger nation coming in, and the Jews having to fight to overcome them, and then, what? and then after that, you know, historically they stopped being able to overcome them and had to kind of scatter out and. And make their way the best they could. And I'm just thinking, like, how would you not come out of that saying that we do better just having voluntary interactions with people right. who who want to associate with us and not being forced into association with people who at sometimes the majority of whom either are ambivalent to us or outright hate us. It just it makes it makes zero sense to me. You know, and, and again. No, go, go ahead. It's actually a fairly new development. Throughout history, Jews have mostly been pretty anarchist. Uh, you know, when they were in, in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, they were doing things underground, the black market, having uh, Jewish schools and, you know, whatever they needed to do, kosher food, they had to, everything had to be black market. It was, it was very anarchist. Uh, and then prior to that, before on, under the czars, uh, they were essentially underground and black market and anarchist and, beyond that, and so on and so forth. Uh, actually, uh, the story of Purim, 
is that Haman, the you know the uh, antagonist in that story, he his complaint against the Jews is that they follow their own laws, they don't follow the laws of the king, they have their own holidays, they do their own thing, they don't pay taxes, etc., etc. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and 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 I mean, if you look at, I mean, so the Jews. They have their their rabbinical uh, laws, and they have their their rabbinate that is you know telling them telling them how to live by it. And they go, no, we want a king. And so there's a whole part of the Bible which is the folly of demanding a king and all the terrible things that come as a result of that. It's right there. I mean, like literally, if you're a religious Jew, uh, it's right there telling you don't do this. And and yet here we are. I I I I don't get it. I I think some of it might have to do with the kibbutzes and the fact that they're like basically communes, but they're voluntary communes and they still have a inherent respect for private property because even if they themselves are sharing all of their stuff in common, and I, I don't know with kibbutzes uh, or at least traditional kibbutzes how much private property is even allowed, but they are inherently respecting the fact that outside of their kibbutz are people that either are, are in their own kibbutzes or are just doing their own thing and not in a kibbutz, and they respect that. They aren't trying to take their private property and say, you know, your attempt to own this property is theft. Um, now, maybe you know more than more than me on this. Do kibbutzes have any level of, like, private ownership, or is it just everything is shared in common, or, or does it vary? They're, they're all different. They're right. all very different. Um, as a note, my, my mother, actually, when she was a kid, her uh, her. Her parents were socialists, actually card-carrying social New York socialists, and oh, wow. they that they're going to go and uh, join a kibbutz, really staunch, uh, you know, communist kibbutz in Israel. I forget the name of it, but it's one of the more extreme ones. And they lived there for about a year, and uh, this was one of the very extreme ones where, you know, you have no, there's no self ownership even. Where, right. Uh, my mother and her sister were not, they didn't live with their parents. They lived in a, in a children's barracks and oh wow, they, their parents weren't allowed to show them any more attention or affection than they showed to any of the other children in the kibbutz. It was a really hardcore wow. social commune, essentially. That and is... so uh, very quickly, <laughs> they came back to the States. Like within a year, <laughs> they came back to the States and literally never mentioned communism again. So that cured them of any interest in, in communism whatsoever. Well, and the thing, I mean, that's the, the final, that's the logical conclusion is your children aren't yours. They belong to the people, uh, quote unquote. And I mean, you look at example though, uh, most of, most of the kibbutzim in Israel are much more like you said, you know, just sort of joint ownership of the area and everybody kind of works together, but it's not quite that extreme. Well, and that's what I was thinking. Cause I've seen some people refer to some of these, um, these settlements as kibbutzes and I'm like. I see shops and I see like, this looks, I, maybe there's some shared ownership in some, some of them, but it didn't look very kibbutzy to me, but, but I, I assume that it was probably that there's, there's variation between them. Um, it's, it, it's just, I, but, but that's a perfect example. You say, I want real communism. So you go and experience some real communism. Then you come back and never, right. were they, were they still socialists after that? Or they just won't even talk about no, it. They were, they were cured. Yeah. <laughs> That's the best, the best, it's a, va it's actually, it's like a vaccine. You get the live socialism and then it, it makes you immune to wanting it ever again. That is, yeah, uh, card carrying socialists. That's time when not quite the popular thing to be in the U S 
Yeah, no, exactly. Now it's kind of chic and cool and you wear your Che Guevara shirt. But back then, I mean, they were looking for hammers and sickles, you know, hidden ones on cakes and stuff and, you know, uh, blackballing people for it. Um, So like like I had mentioned, you know, Jews make up some of the most prominent people across the board. You have, you know, Marx on the communist side. You have someone like a a Rothbard on the on the on the, I guess, anarcho-capitalist side. You've got, you know, on the Chicago school side, you've got freedmen. And I mean, you you could do this all day long. Um, So then I I, I, have on Mises. You've got all these people. So then I guess I guess the question, how much better are we than the non us? How much better are we? How much better? <laughs> what, what, whatever, whatever metric you want to use, like you know, like how many how many uh, Gentiles does it take to make an us? You want me to actually answer that? Well, I mean, you know, ballpark. Ballpark. You know, th- th- that's the thing is that <laughs> you know. We're anarchists, right? So everything comes down to the individual, right? There are good people and there are bad people. There are some fantastic Jews out there, and there's some pretty horrible Jews out there. Right. Uh, my my brother was uh, a prison chaplain for a while, and he he was out in I think Tennessee or somewhere over there visiting uh, Jewish prisoners, and he he talked to this guy who was a serial killer in the '80s who killed like 89 people or something. Oh wow! You know, like the guy was Jewish, but you know that's that doesn't you know it all but he comes exce- out the individual, right? Everybody's- but he ex- but he excelled at being a murderer. Oh, sure, he was great at it. Right, so he's an overachiever. Getting caught though. Oh well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that you, you kill that many people, eventually, eventually, someone catches up to you. So that was a very diplomatic answer. The correct answer is actually seven. Seven. Ah, thank. You. Yeah, seven. Um. So yeah, no, that's okay. Um, so we we've been talking a little bit about Israel already. I'm going to take a wild stab and say that you would not consider yourself a Zionist. Is that correct? Correct. What is your thought? Not by this standard definition, no. It, so that that's what I was going to say. What in 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 terms of because I have some thoughts on this, but I want to get yours first. What is your thoughts? We're anarchists, so when people say to me, "Do you support the Israeli state?" I'm like. I don't support any state. And they're like, yeah, but what about that one? And I'm like, also that one. Like, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't support in terms of, uh, I don't want to lead you on too much. What, what would you, what are your thoughts regarding Israel and the Jewish people in the Holy land and, and all of that stuff? I, I actually lived in Israel for a little while. Oh, okay. And, uh, um, you know, it's a beautiful country. I have a lot, I feel a lot of, personal connection there. I have a lot of, you know, family history there, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, technically, I'm a Palestinian citizen. Technically, I'm an Israeli citizen. Um, you know, technically, I'm a U.S. citizen. Technically, I'm a Canadian citizen. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, actually, have my Canadian citizenship papers here. But those are all just citizenship designations. That's just the government that claims ownership on me, right? Right. So I couldn't care less about those things. And as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, I like the idea of having these multiple citizenships because it's a dilution. But but other than that, you know, let them fight over me, right? But other than that, I couldn't care less about any of them. You know, I'm no more I'm no more Israeli than I am Canadian 
or American. These are all just made up, or Palestinian. All of these are made up political entities that are connected to some criminal gang that that wants to control my life, right? Right, right. They're oh, all, oh, right. Sure. Yeah. But as far as Zionism is concerned, the idea of Zionism, the, the original, like, religious idea of Zionism, of a Jew um, wanting to, you know, feeling a yearning to return to their homeland and, and live in the place of our forefathers, you know, that's uh, that's something I feel, although I, I won't really do it simply because I absolutely despise the Israeli government. Right. But sure. Yeah. And that's, so that's sort of where I am when people ask me, you know, so of course I live in the South. And so the two main things you hear from, uh, Christians in the South, when you say that you're Jewish are, uh, actually, yeah, two things. One thing is, well, oh, my savior's a Jew, which I used to be like, really? And then after a while, I'm like, you know what? That's actually, that's your thing. And it's important to you and good. I'm, you know, I'm happy for you. And, and thank you. I, I get that it, they actually mean well by the second thing is, oh, wow. I'm a very strong supporter of Israel. Right. And I'm like, okay. And then they, they're like, you know, they're, they want to hear what I have to say about it. And they're like, what do you think about, you know, uh, oh, what's his name? Uh, uh, the head of the, the Hamas or whatever. What do you think about oh, that? Huh? about Hamas or what do you think about uh, 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 Netanyahu or what do you think? And I'll just be like, yeah, you know, and again, it's how, you know, do I want to like black pill this person or am I just trying to have a nice conversation at, you know, Kroger? And, uh, and so I'll just be like, uh, Kroger's a store, by the way. Um, yeah. I'll, I don't know if you have them there, uh, but I'll just be like, uh, you know, most of the time I'm just like, yeah, you know, it's really terrible what's going on over there. And I, I just hope that they can, you know, work things out. But the longer answer is what you were saying is like, you know, these are criminal gangs of people and uh, whatever, you know, critical things you want to say about Hamas, which are valid things that you want to say, can pretty much for the most part be said about Israel or the U.S. or Italy. I mean, you can you, you, these are are gangs of people who are uh, using sheets of paper that they wrote on or someone else wrote on and then stealing money from you to hire angsty C students to point guns at you. And, uh, and, uh, shout out to the C students, uh, that, uh, you know, to point guns at you and force you to do what it says on the sheet of paper while they ignore it almost completely. And, uh, but am, am I a Zionist to the extent that, you know, the idea of Jews going back to, you know, their historic homeland and, you know, forming voluntary communities to, to where they can feel safer than where they historically have felt in, in other times. Yeah. I'm all, I'm all for that. But I, I, I'm, I'm like you, like, I, I don't particularly want to go there a, because I think what's going on over there is insane. And I, I don't want in going there to be seen as condoning that. Um, right. And then, and, and I mean, it's bad enough. I live in the U S where I'm essentially uh you know, uh, implicitly participating in what the U S government does. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't, it, it, it's very interesting. And do you, do you find that like when people who don't already know your situation, when they hear you're Jewish, they're like shocked if, 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 if they, to find out that you're not like this staunch Israel supporter. Yeah. I've, I've actually lost a lot of Jewish friends that way. <laughs> that was my next question. Yeah. One of, one of my, um, one of my lines is, uh, you know, when I, when I want to troll people a little bit, is I say I'd like to see illegal Jewish. I'm sorry, 
illegal Mexican settlements in Gaza. I like that. They convert to Judaism. They'll build it no, so. No, they don't have to convert to Judaism. I oh, they just come over. Mexican settlements in Gaza. No. Well, they'll beat. I mean, they'll build them in ten seconds. Uh, I'll tell you. So, I mean, back home, which you know, South Carolina, we're all we're against those illegals. We're against those illegals, and yet everywhere I look, there's an illegal building something. It, uh, or, or I presume an, an illegal. I, I, I shouldn't do that. But uh, I mean, anyway. So back home, a paving project takes the better part of a week. Like un, you know, taking up the old pavement, putting mm-hmm. down. It's like a few days. Here in Toronto, you know, the community we live in here has taken on a paving project, and it's like, it's into month two, and and we're and we're having to take out the community's having to take out a loan because of some unexpected it's flat like there aren't any hills here like it's just paving and sure. uh and and it's you know it's union labor it's canadian union labor and i occasionally see them working and i'm like man back home this already be done and it would have cost even after the the um conversion rate from canadian to you it would have cost a fraction and it's because of essentially if not black market then gray market activity that's getting around all of the different regulations and and you know wage laws and everything else and saying now we're just going to do it cheaper with all these mexicans that'll do it or i i shouldn't say that i don't know that they're mexican i don't know these these suspiciously undocumented persons who are you know building this stuff in a matter of you know seconds to the to the hour compared to to right. you know to other people and 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 it's it's interesting that people will easily uh benefit from illegal activity and then turn around and like vote for a wall or you know vote for you know these can these internment camps essentially that they're building to you know to deal with uh uh to deal with people they go that are to restaurants and eat what's that and yet they go out to restaurants and eat and if you yeah and, and yeah and, and yeah, and they go out to restaurants. Where do you think it, it, and obviously it's cognitive dissonance, but where do you think that let, let me ask you this cuz you you mentioned something. You said that you didn't realize you were an anarchist. Was there ever a point where you thought you were a conservative or a progressive or anything like that or Uh no. I I registered to vote when I was 18. I've never voted, but I actually you know, got caught outside of a grocery store or something like that and said, oh, come register to vote. So I actually registered as an independent. Um, And at that point, I I already had very libertarian views. Uh, By the the time I was, yeah, by the time I was 18, I think I already at that point considered myself a libertarian. Um, Wasn't really into the libertarian party per se, but as far as the libertarian philosophy, that was was something that I, I connected to. Okay. And then as I, as I got more and more educated, I found, um, I found uh, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard and, right, right. and uh, started to realize, oh, okay, yeah, that's what I am. Yeah. And then I had a word for it, right? But, but yeah, I was just sort of, um, I, I, was, I was always anti-authoritarian. I stopped standing for the national anthem when I was in second grade. Uh, my mother was a teacher in the school, also got, you know, got in a little bit of trouble, but, you know, managed to circumvent all of that. And, and I kept it up and that was it. The last time I ever stood for the national anthem was like second grade. And uh, I just, you know, I always thought to myself, 
um, you know, this whole, or not the National Anthem, the uh, Pledge of Allegiance. I think. Yeah, Pledge of Allegiance. They, you know, in school, they do the Pledge of Allegiance. And I, I, right. I thought to myself, what is this nonsense? I'm pledging allegiance to, to like, a, a flag, you know, this cloth, and to, like, right. this republic, and, like, people, you know, if, if I'm a religious Jew, why would I pledge allegiance to anybody but God, you know? And so that, that kind of, that was my thought process in second grade. I was like, this doesn't make any sense, so I'm not going to do it. And I was always very hard-headed, so, so I just stopped. Well, and, and I... Uh, I think that kids intuitively get it because we always used to. I was homeschooled part of my time in school, and then and then schooled in public schools. When I was in public schools, all I remember remember about the Pledge of Allegiance was like kids giggling, and that's when people would throw stuff at each other because the teachers facing the flag and like, you know, like right. we didn't really. I think you intuitively get that this is kind of a joke, right? Like it's like, I love you, flag. <laughs> I mean it. Like, with all of the repetition year after year after year, it it ingrains in you you know and people if you go to go to a ball game oh god uh, you know people stand for that anthem and it's like you know if you're sitting down and i've I've had this happen not not at a ball game because it's not my thing but somewhere you know where i'm just like oh okay they're doing the national anthem i'm gonna just pull my phone out and check facebook or whatever right 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 like there's something wrong with you you know yeah very yeah, I, so and the thing is, like, I'm not because there are people that they they want to scream during the anthem and say like, "Oh, you're a bunch of bootlegger." To me, I'm just like, that's their thing. And yeah. if, if someone wants to give me a hard problem, a hard time for not doing it, then that's one. It's sort of like if I went to, if I went to someone's, uh, you know, church or someone's mosque or whatever, and they started praying, and I'm not gonna like, this is exactly. stupid. I don't believe in this. Like, you know, like then then you know, I, I just sort of out of like. Kind of a combination of respect and and uh, and uh, unnecessary confrontation avoidance. I'm just like, yeah, you do, you do your thing. So we got a couple of questions. Really That's serious religion, one. So, you know, What's that? It is a religion. religion. Yeah, so, yeah, you know, it is. So we got a couple of really serious questions. Aaron Nakamoto asks, uh, "Are you an ATF agent?" Hi, Aaron. <laughs> uh, according to one guy on the internet, yes. An, a, an ATF that. agent? Nice. That's good. That's good. No, I mean, I'm already, I, if I'm not being watched, then someone is slacking. So I'm not even really worried about, I'm live on multiple venues in public. I, if, if I'm not being watched, then DHS has failed all of you. Um, uh, Matt Wright asked, what vape are you using? What vape? This is the OVNS JC01, and it's essentially a Juul compatible um uh, battery and you just drop jewel pods in there and that's it and it's basically double the size battery so that's what i'm using okay hopefully jc01 okay good yeah matt does vape so he actually knows what any of that meant that you just said cool. um so that's good so uh 20 bucks on ebay actually. Tw- uh, so, oh okay cool so this is the the uh, awkward and inappropriate time to plug Anchor FM. Hey guys, are you looking to make a podcast? Well, Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use right from your phone or computer. They have creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast, so it sounds great. Uh, they will distribute your podcast for you, so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. 
And uh, if that all of that interests you, which I'm sure it does, be sure to download the Anchor app for Android or iPhone or go to anchor.fm to get started. And uh, you can even go to anchor.fm slash muddiedwaters and that's us. So I have no segue out of that, but uh, I wanted to get your thoughts about, I usually try to come up with some kind of incredibly corny segue to go in and out of that, but I, I just couldn't be bothered for this episode. Um, I'm just shilling. Um, but, um, so I wanted to get your thoughts on crypto. This is kind of an interesting time to talk about crypto. It's back on the rise again, uh, after a year of everyone going, Oh, crypto's a joke. And now we're, we're back on what's probably going to, I think be another moonshot. Uh, but I wanted to get your thoughts on crypto. Obviously you're an anarchist. Do you think that, Crypto is the future of currency like the crypto uh, 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 advocates say it is? Do you think it's just going to occupy a space in the world of finance? Or do you think it's a fad like uh, like uh, pogs or uh, uh, bottle caps or whatever? I think that it's uh, absolutely the future. And I think that it's a cat that is out of the bag and is never going back in. And I think it's like, uh, you know, people that, that may say it, they're sort of like Krugman talking about the internet. You know? um, That's a good point. The, fa- the fax machine I, quote? I, yeah. to, I actually sent somebody, uh, I had a, a friend that was out here. He wanted to, he wanted to, he had to do some kind of trade. I forget what, what the details were exactly. So he, he just needed a bunch of Bitcoin um, just very quickly. So he, so I sent him some Bitcoin and he was trying to send me cash for it or, you know, U.S. dollars for it. Right. And he had to go to his bank and stand in line for, you know, 20 minutes and go talk to a person and do a bunch of signatures and get a cashier's check and get a whole bunch of, you know, do a whole bunch of paperwork and deal with three different people and jump back in his car and drive across town to go to my bank and to deposit it and stand in line over there and the whole thing, right? you know, took half his day. And then, you know, he's deposited this this, uh, cashier's check into my account. It's not a personal check. It's a cashier's check, but it still takes, you know, whatever it is, 24 hours or something right. to actually clear my account. And, and I'm, you know, thinking about this situation and here I've sent him, you know, <clears throat> X number of Bitcoin and it's in, it's in his wallet 20 minutes later. Right. Right. You know, for nothing for, you know, maybe, you know, 70 cent or a dollar uh, transaction fee. And, uh, and that's it. That's, that's the whole transaction. And he had to go and pay $25 for a cashier's check and all of this rigmarole for, you know, to, to accomplish essentially the same thing, right. sending him money, sending me money, the same transaction. It's just the other side of it, but so ridiculous. And so the idea that, um, the old system is, is somehow better than cryptocurrency is just insane. Yeah, I, I'm not sure if I, so I, I, I wouldn't say, and, I, and by the way, I agree with you. I, I'm not sure the argument is that the old way is better, quote unquote. I think it's two arguments. One is that government is going to, you know, make fiat be what you use. And then the other argument is that, you know, uh, cryptocurrency, even though a specific currency can have a fixed amount, uh, you can also copy that block code and you know make 
essentially a, a million different bitcoins or or make your own uh blockchain and you know make whatever so it's it's so, sort of de facto unlimited what is your there response of, there are thousands of blockchains and different cryptocurrencies out there right most of which essentially zero value right um and and the government can try to say that you know you can only use our currency and you know make other currencies illegal and so on for example uh they just brought back the zimbabwe dollar and made there was a period of time where cryptocurrency was fine in zimbabwe and all there was a group of different currencies that were fine in zimbabwe right now they actually just brought back the zimbabwe dollar and made cryptocurrency illegal well cryptocurrency being illegal in zimbabwe what do you think is the first thing that happened everybody ran out and dumped whatever they had and bought Bitcoin. Right. Well, especially if the alternative is the Zimbabwean dollar. For those who don't know the history of that, at one point, uh, the Zimbabwean dollar put it, well, I don't even know if anyone will get that. Before it collapsed, they had dropped off 27 zeros. Yeah, it it was worth nothing. Like, it was worth less than a fraction of a fraction of a percent of the cost of making it. It was. It was. It made. Uh. Uh. It made the 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 Weimar Republic francs look like. Uh. Or or Deutschmarks look like Swiss francs or something. I mean, it just. It made it look like. It, it was just an absolute joke of a currency. Venezuela's currency is still cons- markedly better than Zimbabwe's was. And yeah, no, I'm sure every. I'm sure everyone is an illegal holder of uh, of Bitcoin in in Zimbabwe. Now, let me ask you this. Um. So there are competing theories on on the few for those who do think cryptocurrency has a future. One is that, and I don't know how you feel about this. So I'll, I I I don't want to I don't want to betray too much how I think. So I'll try to I'll try to say this and sound uh sound unbiased. Uh, but one is that there's going to be all these competing currencies, and that you know. Mm-hmm. Bitcoin's going to be used for this thing, but that there are going to be certain currencies that have very generalized purposes. So you'll only use it for X, like, you know, pot weed coin or whatever. That's what you'll use when you want to buy weed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maximalism. So what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? I think that, um, by definition, money is something which, benefits from the greatest, the, the money, let me think how to phrase this. The best money is the one that has the biggest network effect, right? So right now in the world, the best money is, the best money to use is the US dollar because you can use it almost anywhere. There are a handful of places that refuse to accept it, but right, right. for the most part you can use it there and it's the world's trade and reserve currency, right? And that's network effect. Um, I think that Bitcoin will have the greatest network effect. So you don't, so you you don't, you want me to go into why I can go into why, but yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, as much as you want to delve into that, absolutely. I mean, for, for, uh, perceptual reasons, simply because it already does have the, the most network effect. It's the first it's Bitcoin and everything else is an altcoin. And so deciding between which altcoin to use versus, you know, the one that has, what is it, 40 to 60% of the market right now. Right. right? Um, I think that there are multiple layer solutions being built on top of Bitcoin that will make it much more functional. Uh, you know, people have a problem with it uh, being slow, although it's not really that slow. Um, 
Uh, let me actually address that. Um, you know how long it takes to get a uh, to clear a um, PayPal transaction? Longer than Bitcoin, but I but no, I, I don't know offhand. You you send me your PayPal address and I send you money. How long does it take for you to actually have it? Oh, in like in my bank account? Mm-hmm. Oh, like three so to like, five days like or something really like that. Yeah, like three to five days or something like that. Six months. Really? Because yeah, sure. Because um, I can send it to you, and you can have it, and you can spend it, in theory. But if I go back and dispute the charge, PayPal can pull that out of your account, oh. and and you don't actually have it until six months have passed. So it's essentially it's loaned to you for six months, right? Right. Like That's for example, when you when you have a a um, you have a bank account and I, I write you a check and you go and deposit that check into your account. Now it hasn't cleared yet, but you can still go straight from the bank. It's not going to clear till tomorrow, but you can go straight from the bank and they clear you know thirty percent of that check into your account or X number of dollars, whatever, and you can go and spend that, even though technically you don't have it yet. If the check bounces, then you have to pay that money back. Right, right, right. That's all it is. It's a loan. So you don't actually have a completed transaction. With Bitcoin, you have that completed transaction in 20 minutes. Right. And then when you factor in like fact, fractional reserve banking, which is like no one really has the money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if everyone came and got if even, you know, what, 20 percent of the people came and got their money, it would be this, you know, massive crisis. Whereas with Bitcoin, the money was here and now it's over there. And that's the 100 percent of the amount of the money there. So it, it eliminates the whole all of the inflationary effects that come from fractional reserve right. banking and whatever, which is why you have central bankers that that hate it um, related. And to that, this- and it's just a much better system. You know, it's a much better monetary system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So you so you think that Bitcoin's going to going to pretty much just dominate and and over time, there may still be smaller coins, but for the most part, the bulk, it's going to dominate the market moving forward. I'm not a purist maximalist. So I think that I think that there are like, for example, you know, the dollar is the currency in the United States. Right. 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 But but I also buy things with uh with um, credit card points and, uh, you know, all sorts of other types of currency. There are use cases for other types of things. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where those use cases apply, sure, there will be other currencies. I think that, um, I think that let's, let's say 20 years from now, you might go into a store and, and uh, look at the price on something, and the, that price is in Bitcoin. Now, once you get to the cash register, you might pay in um you might pay in Monero if you want to, and you might pay in uh, Chase Sapphire points, you know, Chase Unlimited points. Right, right. And I think that those will all be, I think that Chase points will be on a blockchain, and I think that, uh, you know, Amex points will be on a blockchain. I think that you'll be able to use those things interchangeably with, you know, any other currencies on, on a, um, what do you call it, a, you know, on a swap, right? Right, right. So the... Uh, the merchant might be getting paid in Bitcoin, but you're paying in um, Chase points, you know, which but, are a blockchain token. Right, right? but the but the the or actual anything. the actual medium for exchange will be Bitcoin. I, I think that the I think that pricing benefits from being consistent, right, and stable. So, right. Yeah. 
So having, you know, if you go into this store and the, and the price is in Bitcoin, you go to the store next door and the price is in Ethereum and you have to sit there and start doing calculations right. and, and uh, keeping track of a thousand different currencies in order to know what the price of anything is. I think that's that that creates a market that's very inefficient and confusing. Yeah. So I think that even if a, a merchant wants to be paid in Ethereum, they'll still price everything on their store shelves in Bitcoin and you can still pay at the cash register in Bitcoin, it's just that they'll have a swap to Ethereum, you know, as it comes into their wallet. Right, right. And like, even like, even just having to figure out two of them. So like when we were just in Niagara Falls, a lot of places have this much Canadian, this much American, even that has people like, well, I don't, well, do you want to use our American or Canadian? And it's like, you know, and really they're just basically doing a little bit rougher version of the which gets you the slightly better price too sure well and that's the thing so people are trying to figure out you know they're, they're, they're going and like googling what what their bank's uh exchange rate is to figure out if they can and it's you know for like a fast food meal or something you're like they're going to save six cents or whatever but but people do that whereas you know now if you've got it and especially when you've got these coins and it's going to be down to like you know the six decimal point and you're just trying you know it, it, like you said it's it's going to be too want blocky to 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 be used on a mass scale for the average consumer who's just like I want it I want to know what it costs so I can buy it and then go about the rest of my day. Um uh, we have a question we have a question from uh Levi Markel who I don't maybe related uh who said uh uh yeah. he said what's that? Yeah, he's my cousin. Oh, okay. He asked uh what actual value does crypto hold in a permanent sense? when compared to gold or whatever? Uh, what value does gold hold in a permanent sense? All value is subjective. So yeah. nothing really has any value until somebody values it. You know, how much is a, how much value does uh, gold have when you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and somebody says, I will sell you a bottle of water for five gold coins and that's all you have on you, you'll give five gold coins, you know? Now, right now that's uh, what $7,000 worth of gold, but it doesn't matter. Value right. is subjective to the situation and to the individual. You know? So it doesn't really matter what, whether it's gold or water or cryptocurrency. Right. Right. Or like our future president, Marianne Williamson says value is created when one helps another actualize their potential. Which sounds suspiciously like capitalism, but anyway. Um, so uh, yeah, so that's so. Speaking of Bitcoin, you can actually use Bitcoin uh, to purchase uh, tickets to Anarcho Vegas, which is coming up July twentieth and twenty first. Uh, tell us a little bit about Anarcho Vegas. You said this is the first year that you guys are doing this, right? This is the first year, and we wanted to do something, you know, locally in the states where. Uh, you know, a lot of people find it hard to go to things like Anarchapulco. Right. Uh, you know, you got to have a passport, uh, which costs money, and the flights are expensive, and, you know, hotels, and, you know, the whole thing, right? So for, for a lot of people, that's out of reach. So we wanted to do something where, you know, Vegas is very cheap to fly to from anywhere in the States. Tends to be. Uh, it's pretty cheap to stay in. Um, and we thought... You know, this is a fun city and people can come and enjoy a weekend and hear a bunch of speakers and learn something and walk away with, you know, with 
um, knowledge and connections and relationships from people that they've met without having to travel internationally. Right. Very cool. So who, what kind of like, uh, you have some speakers booked already, right? Yes. Who are the, who are some of the people that you have coming up for, for Anaco Vegas? So the, the full speaker list is on the website, amicovegas.com, but, uh, we'll have, as far as like big names that people might recognize, we'll have Larkin Rose and Jared Griffin. Um, Jeff Berwick will be speaking at Anaco Vegas. Um, we have a name that a lot of people, a lot of people know him as Bo of the Fifth Column, and a lot of people know him as Justin King. And oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, Bo, have you have you seen uh, any of the Bo videos? I, I, yeah, I've heard of Bo of the Fifth Column. Yeah. Have you watched any of his stuff? Uh, not recent. I've I, I have, but not one that I could. I just remember that name and remember watching something that someone right. shared from him. Yeah, uh, it, it's uh, funny. He, he gets shared on. Uh, like now this and uh, what's uh, said, like some staunch uh, democratic page or, you know, various things like that. And they, right. They right. Him. And he never uses the word anarchy, but at least not in his uh, Bo persona, but that's smart though. That's very, smart though. Guy. Yeah. Amazing. What, what kind of effect he's having in the sort of outside world. Know, preaching instead of preaching to the choir preaching to you know people who see that there's something wrong in the world and can't quite put their finger on it because they're so bombarded with uh propaganda but he kind of he cuts right through it in, in an amazing way uh, so he'll be speaking this is his first time publicly as Bo speaking as an anarchist so that's interesting cool. um we'll have a, a, a crypto panel that uh Sterling Luhan will be um, moderating for the media panel that um, Naomi Brockle will be moderating, an independent media panel. And um, we'll have uh, David Rodriguez speaking about homeschooling and unschooling. Nice. And uh, that's one of my, that's yeah. one of my favorite subjects. Ovens O'Brien. O'Brien will be speaking. She's fantastic. I don't know if you've heard of her. Yeah, I've, I've heard of her as well unschooling is one of my favorite subjects i was didn't realize it at the time but i was unschooled the last couple of years of high school um when i had been homeschooled previously my parents had used uh religious uh homeschool materials because they were the easiest to find right. and uh and then so it wasn't markedly well the the curriculum wasn't markedly different than what was at regular public school the difference was that my dad was taking me around uh, and, and like showing me life and how things apply to, you know, math applies to things and science applies to things, but the actual curriculum was roughly the same. The last two years where they were pretty, my dad was just pretty much keeping me out of juvie because none of the high schools in our County would take me. Um, he was pretty, it was a lot more of a, of a relaxed way of teaching that there's like, these are the things that the state requires you to learn. And so we're going to learn those things, but we're not going to use like a set curriculum to do that. And and it worked way better and it prepared me for, that was the same time that I was telling you I started a web design company that had right. me in the same mindset where it was like, oh wow, I can apply this stuff and make money from it. You know, classic Jew. My, my dad's teaching me like how things can make money for me. And I'm like, oh, so I can actually start making money from this. And whereas I think if I had been in school during that time, in public school during that time, I'd have been, you know, now you go to college 
now you go to post-grad, now you become doctor, lawyer, philosopher, whatever. You become whatever. Hopefully something that could actually make money. And uh, I'm grateful that I was so bad in ninth and 10th grade that the schools wouldn't take me because that allowed me to, to be kind of set up to be more independent. Um, were you, so were you public schooled or, or homeschooled or? Uh, well, my mother was a school teacher. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. You told me that you told me that. Yeah. yeah. So, so we were enrolled in school and we physically went to school, but most of my education came from, um, uh, basically at home, but not in a homeschooling, you know, structured curriculum sort of way. Right. But, but just in the sense that my parents, you know, my father was, my father is very scholarly and always encouraged learning. We had a house full of books. We didn't have a television in the house. So we read a lot. And, uh, much of my education came from 13 words that my parents would tell me when we'd ask them a question, they would say, let's go to the library and see if there's a book about it. Yes. And so we'd go to the library and, you know, five kids, we'd pile into the station wagon and come back. At that time, you were allowed to check out five books at a time. And we'd come back home with 25 books, five each. And the librarians didn't believe that we were actually, you know, reading five books in the, you know, in the allotted, you know, I think it was two weeks time period um, that we had them. And, you know, it was funny because we actually didn't read you know, I, I would check out five books and my brother would check out five books and so on and so forth. Right. Uh, we weren't reading five books. I would finish my books and then I'd go and read his books. Right, right, know? right. And uh, so we just, we read a lot. And so that's where my education really came from. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it's interesting. This is, our, our childhood seemed like they parallel a lot because uh, here's another thing. So my my mom is incredibly bright. She's not, and she'd be the first one to say, she's not very she has things that interest her, but she's not like me or, or like you where it's like, you sort of want to learn all these different things. She's not so much like that. So when I would ask her stuff, she would say, and she didn't know, she'd go, I don't know, let's go find out. And she'd take me to the the library and we would, and you know, I'm, I'm also a pre-internet kid and uh, you know, we'd check out books and, and, or I'd sometimes stay there for quite a while and read stuff there. Um, when the internet happened, I turned into a total nerd because I didn't care about the rest of these losers at all. Now I could literally just stay at home and 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 you know and and you know learn stuff at the speed of a dial-up connection, and right. uh, and it was incredible. But um, so one of the things in your one of the things you're featuring in the uh, and we've only loosely mentioned him before. You you have a, a free uh, Ross Ulbricht um or Ulbricht. I'm not sure how you say that. Uh, 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 thing that's happening during that, and then I think you have you're gonna have Ross's uh, Russ's is that his mother there? Yeah, Lynn is his mother. Yeah, yeah. Tell us about Russ Albright. Is it Albright or Albright? I think it's Albright. Yeah, I I think it is as well. We've mentioned it briefly on this show, and we've mentioned him a couple times on the show I co-host uh, with Matt Wright, Muddy Waters of Freedom. Give us a little primer on Ross Ulbricht, Russ Ulbricht, and just the absolute travesty of what's what's happened to him. So, so to start with, he he uh, he created a website where people could securely conduct trade, any kind of trade. I mean, right. you could sell their chairs or whatever. You could sell anything on on that marketplace, but it was uh, secure and and uh, 
um, identities were, were very well hidden and so on. And so it was essentially a drug marketplace. Now, Rost himself was just a webmaster. You know, right. System. And um, he ran the site. And they somehow, uh, a couple of, um, of uh, federal agents were able to infiltrate and they busted him and, and he went to prison for conspiracy to, you know, to money launder and conspiracy to, um, I'm trying to remember exactly what the charges were, but it was, you know, basically, you know, drug dealing and money laundering and stuff like that, which actually- Like, e- like, every, like every single crime of, of commerce that they could put on him. Right. But, yeah. but he hadn't actually ever committed any of those crimes. That's the thing. And, and A, no, not, only, not only hadn't A, committed any of those crimes, B, there are actually laws in place that protect webmasters from crimes that are committed by people on their website. Right. So, for example, if you're, if you're Craigslist and somebody is uh, doing you know, human trafficking and prostitution on your site, you're not liable for what your users do. So there are actually laws about that. Right. That, and that's the thing. So, I mean, if he's in jail, because he's in jail for like the rest of his life, right? Essentially, yeah. I mean, unless he's pardoned or, or you know, appealed or whatever. But I mean, he's he, as the sentencing stands, he'll never he'll never see freedom again. And right. you've got, and in my mind, like you said, Craigslist, Backpage, up here, uh, what's it called? That's big here. It's like the Canadian, uh, Kijiji. Um, there's so much illegal. Facebook. Sure. I I have seen people post weed in Facebook Marketplace. Why sure. is Mark Zuckerberg not going to jail for this? Now, of course, he like just like with Russ, Mark has absolutely nothing to do with that. Or going even further, you know, if someone sells something and misrepresents it uh, in, uh, in on Amazon, why would Jeff Bezos not then you know get a racketeering charge for you know conspiracy right. to defraud people? Why do you think that the reason my theory is that the reason they came after him so hard is because it was so it, they had such a hard time for so long infiltrating it as opposed to Craigslist where you just basically sit there and wait for someone stupid enough to say, hey, you want to buy crack or whatever. And and this was like it was more difficult. Do you think there's more to it or do you think it was just that he made a better website? So he's spending the rest well, of his life in, in prison for it. It was so it was so effective that they. I, I believe they felt they had to make an example out of the Silk Road in order to scare off anybody from doing that. And, I mean, interestingly enough, uh, as, as soon as he was arrested, people started working on Silk Road 2, and that went up what, pretty much uh, months later, a couple months later. Three, right, 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 later, right. Silk Road 2 went up, and then that guy got arrested, uh, and I think he's already out. And then uh, Silk Road 3 went up, and I think, I mean, there, there were other people that were arrested for sites like this, and none of them got anywhere near that sort of sentence. You know, I think yeah. they just wanted to make a, an example out of Ross uh, to the point where his trial can barely even be considered a trial. You know, it's such a kangaroo trial. Uh, actually, the, the, the two uh, federal agents that were involved in... in um, infiltrating and arresting him those two agents were arrested themselves actually on uh corruption and you know stealing money and you know the whole the whole thing was just such a just such a screw up yeah and they were not allowed to point out any of that in ross's trial you know 
and they had these these agents had access to they had admin access to to the site uh, you know what i mean when i say root access right they yeah yeah uh, yeah yeah they could have falsified any of the evidence that was presented you know it's incredible it's incredible and, and again like you said other people have been making it since then uh and haven't gotten nearly the charges when they've been caught um it's it stinks to hell uh, uh the, the from what i've read i'm like half of it was yes he made something so effective that it made it really 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 e- a lot easier to sell drugs online and sell prostitution and whatever other voluntary commerce that consenting adults want to engage in that are that's illegal it made it a lot easier for a while at least but i think some of it was just stuff specific to him like you said corrupt cops and everything else it's it's absolutely ridiculous so you guys are having uh uh i guess a benefit to to uh to free him and i know there's a petition attached tell us a little bit about what what you guys are doing and so essentially with the free ross party um there's uh well, that's included in, you know, if you buy a ticket to Anarcha Vegas, you go to the party, no problem. If, you know, we, we have uh, our event basically the same day, the same weekend as Freedom Fest. So if any Freedom Fest attendees want to, after Freedom Fest ends on Saturday, if they want to come Saturday night to the party, it's a $30 donation. Um, we're just basically going to cover our costs for the location and, you know, cleaning costs and whatever purchases we have to do. And then after right. that, everything goes to uh, Lynn. Uh, I think actually somebody's uh, donating some really cool custom, like one-off merchandise that will be auctioned. Nice. um, For for that also. So I haven't seen it yet, but but from what I hear, it's uh, some pretty cool stuff. So that's worth checking out. So yeah, if somebody's at Freedom Fest and wants to come, uh, or if you just happen to live in Vegas or be around and you don't want to come to the conference or you're busy on Sunday, but just come and hang out and party with us on Saturday night. That's very for... cool. Yeah, that's very, very cool. Yeah, I think it's I, I think you're going to do well on this because I've heard such great things about Anarchopoco and but the first thing I hear from people that don't go is like, you know, I'm having to get a passport or a lot. So I've met a lot of people that I've talked to a lot of people that the reason they can't go is because they have some kind of charge on their record that they actually can't go to Mexico. Uh, like they've got some kind of stupid simple possession charge or DUI charge from God knows how long ago and and they can't go. So this actually makes it a lot easier if, if, if you want to be able to go to that. And it's obviously would be less expensive too. So that's, that's really cool. I've talked to Justin King and Jeff Berwick about getting Justin to come down to speak at Anacapulco and Justin goes, sorry, but I can't, you know, I can't travel, you know, so he's got, uh, also, you know, some kind of legal stuff and, and so can't go, so not going to see him at Anarchapulco ever. Yeah. And that goes for other people too. You just can't yeah. travel out of the country yeah. for whatever reason. My, uh, co-host on the muddy waters of freedom couldn't visit me up here in Canada cause he has like an old possession charge in a country that where weed is legal. Now weed is legal right. here. Uh, or at least, you know, state purchased weed or weed you grow on your own or whatever is, is, but weed's legal here. But if you have a possession charge somewhere else, you cannot come here. And, uh, so unless he gets, you know, pays to get, you know, some stupid misdemeanor expunged from his record, he, he can't come here. So it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But, um, so Anarcho Vegas, uh, so that's really cool. Um, 
Yakov, thank you again for joining us. I, I really had an absolute blast having you on. Uh, before I let you go, I just want to give you a chance to uh, tell us, talk about anything that you... Oh, that was. There was one more thing I wanted to ask you about, and then we'll do your final thoughts after that. Do you... I, I don't know. Do you consider yourself an anarcho-capitalist or just an, just no, no hyphenation anarchist or... I used to. Lately, I'm, I'm leaning much more towards um, just uh, anarchists without adjectives. I, I think that I think that a lot of people get caught up in the semantics of, of uh, you know, I always I always like to make a differentiation between like proprietarian anarchism and anti-proprietarian anarchism. Right, 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 right. ANCAP versus ANCOM, because it's not really the lines aren't as clear as ANCAP versus ANCOM. It's really right. proper anti-proprietarian right and the truth of the matter is and let me ask you a question actually um do you believe that let's say let's say i i go and i homestead a property and uh and you know i build it out and um it's legitimately owned by me and so on and um i pass away right um and my children couldn't care less. It's you know, it's just some property out in the woods, and it's run down and whatever. And uh, you know, they couldn't care less about it. And uh, so it just lies fallow and uh, starts to deteriorate. And somebody comes in, you know, ten years later and says, "Okay, this is this is cool. There's a already a foundation here. There's a couple of walls still up. Uh, I'm going to move into this property and rebuild it." You know, well, let's say they they rebuild it, and my grandson or something goes out to, you know, to visit there because, oh, he heard that, uh, you know, grandpa had a place out there and he wants to go see it. And he sees that there's this, you know, really nice house that somebody built there. And he goes, oh, well, that's my grandfather's property. He wants to claim it. Do you believe that in between there, there's some kind of abandonment or that abandonment of, of property is possible? You personally. So this is an excellent question about essentially the, the nature of the stickiness of property rights. And I, I'm going to give myself uh, 30 seconds on the clock and answer this. So I think that uh, in general, this is somewhat of a trolley problem in that if someone's value, what the value they see in a property is, is so low that they just let it sit there, someone's probably going to buy it from them for next to nothing. So I think in most cases it deals with itself. But in general, I think that in a post-state society, you're going you're gonna to find that a question like that is going to be settled by that local community. And in most cases, that far along, n no, uh, it, it, it would be hard for them to argue that it was a ban. I know I've gone past the 30 seconds, but uh, uh, it would be hard to argue that it was not abandoned. You know, if you're talking generations, you know, if you're talking five or six years, that's one thing. But if you're talking generations, I think in most communities, they're going to end up saying, yeah, you haven't really done anything with this. And, you know your great grandfather or whatever owned this, but you know, there's been nothing here and you know, everything that was here before has, you know, disintegrated and you know, the trees have grown up, grown up over. It's, it's not really yours anymore. What do, do you agree with me on that? Or that's the wrong answer. The correct, okay. the correct answer is that if they registered it with some kind of title company and it was possible to find the owners, right. And they made the effort to register the property. And so somebody saw that property and said, Oh, I want that property. Let me see if there are owners. If they couldn't, if it was impossible to find the owners and they move in, they moved in. And right. you're going to come in and say, hey, that's mine. 
well, go ahead and prove it. I'm sorry, you can't prove it. And I'm going to defend what I've built here, right? If you've made the effort to register that property with some kind of title company where it's findable and somebody can look for the owners and find them and say, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks or whatever for that property, a Bitcoin, right? Um, then that removes the issue of abandonment. And that's so actually- an... It'll be solved by markets, but not by, not by philosophy. Right. And that's actually an interesting thing because I just recently had read about the idea of, you know, where people go, well, who's going to enforce property without a state? And people were saying you could actually apply the blockchain to use as sort of a trustless system of 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 having, you know, basically a, 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 a register that anyone can check at any given time of who owns what land and, and what uh, 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 larger, um, uh, like buildings and things like that, or, you know, who owns ownership shares of a company and things that those are all things that can be in a, in a trustless blockchain without needing state enforcement for it. Right. So I think that markets will solve the issue, not philosophy. So I think that the idea of sticky property is kind of irrelevant because, um, you can, cry from now till next year about property being sticky. But when it comes down to real life, either either the market has solved this solved for stickiness or, or, you know, come up with some solution that that allows you as a as an owner of property to protect your property. You know, and, and if it doesn't, then but, we're right. We're right back to square one at some point where you've got to stay well, you what you can defend. Right. And yeah. That's just, a, that's just a fact of reality that has nothing to do with, um, like, again, uh, we live in a, call it a statist society, right? Um, the truth of the matter is we live in an anarchist society, only that there are criminals and anarchism doesn't, doesn't do away with criminals. Like you'll still have criminality. We just have to find market solutions to criminality. And so, so things like ways, for example, which allow you to bypass highway robbers, um, but the more those solutions become, the freer and more secure we'll be, you know, economically and, and in our personal lives and so on. But we have to actually find market solutions. Right. Right. Philosophy is irrelevant. So saying that I believe in sticky property or don't believe in sticky property, that I'm propertarian or anti-propertarian is, is sort of irrelevant, you know? Well, you can only, and this is... This is my egoist speaking. Like you said, you can only own what you can defend either through right. you or a proxy. If, if, if you aren't, you know, even something as small as a toothbrush, if, if your ability to defend it is less than the perceived self-interest of the person who wants to take it from you, right. it ain't yours anymore at some point. The, if you have the, money in the bank and the IRS seizes it, it's not your money anymore. It's not your money anymore. The reason you know. that I am secure that no one's going to take this bottle of water from me is because a, I've already drank from it B, which means the person's going to want it that much less. There's very little perceived self-interest on their part to take this bottle of water from me because they could get in trouble for it. I might fight them for it. I wouldn't cause I have another one right here, but they, you know, th there are so many other reasons that instead of doing that, they either go buy the bottle of water themselves or they say, Hey, can I have this other bottle of water? And I'd say, yeah, sure. But it's not the belief in the nature of property rights 
that allows me to feel secure that no one's going to try to kill me for this bottle of water. It's the reality of, of life and of power that, that makes it that way. So that, but it's a very, it's an interesting subject. I I like the fact that markets solve things that we don't have to go back to a forced association system because there's a market system that's better. If people can organize, if people are able to organize within a system of forced association, which is a far less than ideal way of doing things, then they can definitely do it in a system of voluntary uh, association where they can come up with far better and more efficient ways of doing things. Right. And the history of freedom is the history of markets. Right. Uh, the Magna Carta wasn't signed because uh, because of magnanimity. It was signed because of uh, it was a response to objective reality of, right. of what was going on in the world, you know. Yeah, it was the king not wanting to die. I mean, the, the, <laughs> a lot of times where the, the state has ceded any level of control or decentralized anything, it's usually after a revolt or a threat of a revolt that was very, uh, a very effective threat or a very, uh, um, uh, uh, what I'm looking for, credible threat of a revolt. They go, okay, well, well here, you can have a little, little bit of this and that. And I mean, so it is what it is. So anyway, uh, again, really great to have you on. I, I hope to be able to have you on again soon. Uh, maybe to promote future Anarcho Vegas events. But before I let you go, uh, I just want to give you a chance to talk about anything that you feel like we haven't addressed. If there's anything that you want to plug or promote, uh, now is your time to do it. You have as much time as you want. Uh, Yakov Markel, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, really just, I'd like everybody to go to anarchovegas.com and come uh, come check us out. We have a great speaker lineup. That's going to be a pretty interesting party and, one of the things that people love about going to Anarchapulco is not not even as much the speakers, although that's certainly part of it, but being able to go and hang out with Lark and Rose, you know, outside and and uh, have a conversation with Jeffrey Tucker and Jeff right. Bowick and G. Edward Griffin and, you know, hey, G. Edward Griffin, let me buy you a beer. And, and so those interactions and relationships and other people that you meet who are also there, uh, it's just a, such a amazing social experience and that's that's why i've gone back every year uh not because i i go for the speakers i sit still very poorly uh when somebody's talking at me right 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 from you know school years i i don't do it very well but but to be able to sit at the bar and have a four-hour conversation with mark edge or uh jeffrey tucker or whoever it's just an amazing experience and it's worthwhile you know so yeah, definitely come and check us out, and uh, we're, we'll actually have—I don't know how many tickets we have left for it—but we're doing a speakers brunch uh, right before the conference starts, and we only have twenty tickets available, and I'm not sure how many have sold. Uh, so if you want to do something like that, that'll be really cool. Um, and yeah, that's it. Check me out at Anarchy Jewish Man on Facebook, and uh, I tend to post interesting stuff. I think. So that's my spiel. Very good. Good spiel. I'm happy for your spiel. Um, and we yeah. managed through the whole show without making any oven jokes. Well, you start, you, 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 you kind of did a preview before. <laughs> I had my, my uh, two guests ago, uh, Remzo Martinez said that this is sort of the opposite. Of, I'm the opposite. I'm the anti Anne Frank. Uh, I'm in the basement and everyone knows where I am. Um, but, uh, so there, now we did a Jew joke. Um, but guys, yeah, be sure to check out Anarcho Vegas 
and uh, all of the the uh, links are going to be in the show notes. So be sure to to, to check those all out. Uh, the Anarchy Jewish Man um, and all of that. Um, Yaakov, again, thank you so much. Stick around. I'm going to talk with you a bit for a bit during the outro. Uh, but guys, thank you again for tuning in to my fellow Americans. It was an absolute mitzvah. There you go. It's a mitzvah to have you here. And uh, <laughs> and uh, so be sure. To... What's that? Thank you very much for having me. It was an enjoyable conversation. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And guys, be sure to tune in uh, tomorrow night, uh, the 11th, uh, for Matt Wright on the Writer's Block. He will be interviewing Kim Ruff, the uh, one of the uh, Libertarian presidential candidates. And uh, and then on Friday night, Shabbat Shalom, it's Jason Lyon. Uh, he's a Gentile. But uh, uh, be sure to check him out on Mr. America, The Bearded Truth. And then have a great weekend. Tune in again next Monday for Jason Lyon on his non-Shabbat episode of Mr. America, The Bearded Truth. And, uh, and then tune in on Tuesday night, uh, where, uh, uh, for the Muddy Waters of Freedom, where Matt and I, Matt Wright and I will be parsing through the week's, uh, uh, the week's events with the, with the joy of, of a child. And then tune in again next Wednesday, right here, probably 8 PM for my fellow Americans. I will be, I will be, uh, uh, who was my guest? Charity Nicole will be my guest. Um, so, uh, be sure to check that out, but guys, thanks again for watching. We will see you soon and God bless you.